morning. It's good to see you. I want to take just a moment of privilege, if I might. I think many of you know, but probably not all of you. Um, on Friday, my mother-in-law lives with us, and she has for um, 11 years or so. I could count the hours and the days. I won't do that. On Friday, on Friday, she, uh, I was down working out in, the, in my hobbit hole, and I heard a thump, and sure enough, she fell and fractured her hip. And so this morning, um, she has undergone surgery. I just got a text from Debbie just a minute ago that that uh, surgery went very well. She did well, and uh, she'll spend a couple of days in the hospital and probably spend some time in rehab. So we invite your prayers. We don't need anything else right now. Thank you. We invite your prayers both for her and uh, for my bride because she'll be bearing uh, most of the uh, energy with respect to caring for her. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to Habakkuk, if you would. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. That's number eight in a lineup of 12 of the minor prophets in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Sandwiched between, this will help you, sandwiched right between Nahum and Zephaniah. Here's how they flow. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and then Habakkuk. Following that is Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. If you're interested, on my Bible, it's page 9, uh, excuse me, on page 876. I'm not sure that'll help you, but that's what I got. Now, we're going to get to the text here in a few minutes, um, but let me just do some time introduction. The Bible doesn't say much about this minor prophet. He's a contemporary of Jeremiah. He may very well have known Ezekiel and Daniel. His prophecies possibly overlapped uh, the three Babylonian invasions of Judah. That took place over about a 20-year period from towards the end of the 7th century B.C., into the beginning of the 6th century B.C., culminating in the final conquest of uh, Judah in 586 by uh, the Babylonians. His primary audience was the people of Judah, but his would be a written prophecy because it chronicles for us a conversation that he had with God. Chapters 1 and 2 record the prayers of Habakkuk, really their complaints from Habakkuk, and then we have two responses from God to those uh, complaints. The first complaint was about the unpunished sins that Judah was uh, carrying out, and the second complaint was directed to God's answer for his first complaint. Next week, Pastor Joshua will show us a turnaround in chapter 3 in uh, Habakkuk's spirit. The main point of Habakkuk, and this will be on a slide for you, though God's actions may seem slow in coming, and even strange in how they present themselves, his plans continue. God will not forsake his purposes or his people. We heard uh, Jim McAllister read Isaiah 55, all 13 verses of Isaiah 55 a little earlier to help us remember that, that God's working. And sometimes that's very mysterious to us. A key verse in understanding Habakkuk and understanding that main thought would be in chapter 2, verse 4, where we're reminded that the righteous shall live by his faith. That verse is recited in three different places in the New Testament. It's recited in Romans 1, it's recited in Galatians 3, and it's recited in Hebrews 10. We'll look at those verses more specifically later on. But our culture, to say the least, is very topsy-turvy. Often seems like the bad guys are winning, 
and that evil is having its way. And Habakkuk reminds us that no matter what's going on in our culture, God is still in control. In times of uncertainty, we look back to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, and our faith is reinforced. Then looking forward, Habakkuk would tell us that we are to live by faith in the promise that Jesus will return and Satan will be cast in the lake of fire forever and ever. Why should we study this little book? It's a little book written by a guy whose name sounds like he came out of a Star Wars movie. I want to give you four reasons. I could, I could use the standard reason that it was sort of handed down, but I'll give you four reasons from the scriptures for us to, uh, to think about this, and there are many others. We should study Habakkuk 1 because it's in the canon of scripture, and all of God's word is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. We should study Habakkuk number 2 because it contains a dialogue between God and his prophet. And even in the Old Testament, if you count the verses and count all and look at all the narrative, those conversations are relatively rare. So we should be drawn to them. Three, because there is a contemporary relevance in this book written 2,600 years ago, roughly. Our 21st century concerns about evil triumphing over good echo Habakkuk's concerns from 600 B.C. Just as Romans 1 helps our understanding of why God allows evil and injustice in our day, Habakkuk shows us how to wait righteously and even with questions and concerns to trust completely in the same God. Fourth reason I would suggest we study Habakkuk is because in Habakkuk we find the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 4, we're told the righteous shall live by his faith. Joshua will share with us next week from chapter 3, verse 18, that Habakkuk will take joy in the God of his salvation. Those are expressions about the gospel. We'll say more about them at the end of the sermon. But they point readers to the cross. And this invites believers to their knees because it makes it clear for us that our redemption, brothers and sisters, our redemption is not in our own power. We recall what Paul writes for us in Galatians 2. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Habakkuk helps us think in those sorts of ways. Here's where we're headed this morning. I want to go through a summary review, review excuse me, of Habakkuk's first complaint and God's answer to that complaint. Then we'll do the same thing with his second complaint and God's answer to that complaint. There are five woes in chapter 2. and They're intended to illustrate, if you will, that God is a righteous judge and he will punish evil. Those five woes unfold in two sections. Both sections are punctuated by key verses in the book of Habakkuk that highlight the sovereign authority of God. We'll paraphrase those. We'll glance at those. And since all Scripture is about Jesus, I want us to see for a few moments this morning, in a little while, where we can find Jesus in chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk. Fourthly, I want us to use the revelations about Christ as a bridge to the gospel to help us see where Habakkuk fits in the redemptive timeline of God in the scriptures. Now, we're going to go through some verses, and then we're, going to have, we're not going to read them all at one time. Slides should be on the screen to help you stay with me. One of the brothers came up to me this morning and said, My mom and dad are here, and they're going to get to hear you preach, and I told them they need to listen fast. That's fair. That's fair. 
I try to slow down. Sometimes. <clears throat> As we go through, thank you for being gracious. As we go through these two chapters today, I want to invite you to think about how relevant the concerns of Habakkuk then are now. And oh, by the way, if you just happen to be in Yoakum's community group for our meeting tonight, that issue might pop up when we discuss things. <clears throat> so let's go, we're going to read much of the first two chapters, but not all of them. Let's begin at the beginning. Go to verse 1 of chapter 1 with me, and let's read the first four verses. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk's first complaint was about the sin of God's people. Why is God idle in the presence of sin among his people? Habakkuk, he's impatient with God's seemingly disinterested attitude about what's going on in Judah. There's great, we get a glimpse in these first four verses of the great disinterest in the law of God. And we see that, that even when justice comes forth, it's not right. Habakkuk raises three specific concerns for us. The first one is about unchecked sin that is hurting innocent people. His second concern is about a, a contentious culture taking the form of violence and destruction. Again, draw lines with me from then to our day as you hear these things. He also raises a concern about an impotent justice system. It's gotten so bad that even when justice is applied, it's applied in unjust ways. Thinking about unchecked sin and a contentious culture and injustice, I think you would agree the struggles that we endure every day on the news and in our lives are not new and they are not unique. So we need to think more about how we deal with that, and Habakkuk will teach us about these things. We lean on Habakkuk to remember that even in the midst of all this uncertainty and all the craziness and topsy-turvy things that are going on in our world where bad is good and good is bad and, and evil's on top, God is not impotent and he is not wringing his hands. God has a purpose and a plan. But it is one that Habakkuk wouldn't have guessed in a million tries. So look with me as we pick up in verse 5 of chapter 1 for the Lord's answer. Now remember, he's complaining about what's taking place. And so God says, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, your scripture may say Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. You get a picture of these guys riding their horses, leaning forward, ready for battle. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. 
Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So Habakkuk's first complaint had to do with God's idleness in the presence of the sin of his people. And the answer here is God is working, sometimes in ways that we do not expect or understand. In verse 5 and 6, we would note that God is sovereign and he is active. Judah would experience the rod of God's discipline, just not in a way that Habakkuk would have wanted it to happen. Not in a way that Habakkuk would have expected it to happen. God was raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to punish Israelite sinners. We heard in verses 6 through 11 what those guys were like. They were powerful. They were ruthless. They were insatiable in their desire to kill and have conquest over lesser people. So I want to raise two implications for us there as we think about Habakkuk's complaint and God's answer. When our answers to prayer are slow or seemingly absent, it does not mean that God is absent or impotent. Recall what God told Joshua um, hundreds of years before he spoke this kind of thing to Habakkuk. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so when we are in the midst of unexpected circumstances that aren't going the way that we think they ought to go or would prefer for them to go, and God is not acting in ways that we would want him to act, we recall that promise. When things are going on that we can't understand, we're to lock on with our faith to the faithfulness of God. The second implication is that the storyline of history is not happening outside of the providence of God. Think with me for a moment. Very early on in the scripture, we learn that even the injustice of man is within the plans and purposes of God. We see that when Joseph is, is, is sold into slavery. And at the end of Genesis 50, we read, what you meant for evil, God means for good. We see that again in the book of Exodus when we're told that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, this wicked man who would not let his people go. So we are reminded that even the injustice and, 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 and evil plans of man are within, somehow within, the plan and the purpose of God. When I read, we read about the Babylonian punishers, we remember that God is governing all things. When we read about the craziness in our own society, and it just gets crazier and social media just puts it everywhere, we remember God is governing all things. He's not intimidated by Facebook or Instagram. He's still doing what he seeks to accomplish in his will, in his perfect will. As I read about this, I thought about William Cooper's song. You know him as the guy that wrote the hymn, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He wrote another hymn, a little less famous, and one of the lyrics went like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. God does move in mysterious ways. I'm looking forward to the day when, she, I don't think she would get there just yet, but I'm looking forward to the day when I can sit down with my mother-in-law and say, okay, we know the frowning providence. Let's see where God's smiling face is in there. Let's look for that. She'll saddle up. She'll do that because she's a gamer. And she knows that God is good and loves her and will watch out for her. She's going to struggle with the smiling face part right now, but eventually it'll come clear and we'll rejoice over it together. Habakkuk is mystified. This is not what I'm asking for, God. 
So his second complaint really has to deal with how God is answering the first complaint. That's sort of like us, isn't it? God, I want you to fix this. Would you fix this? Why are you not fixing this? Oh, by the way, God, let me tell you how to go about doing that. Habakkuk is confused. He may even be disapproving of what God is intending to do. But watch what he does. Watch what he does. Leaning on what he knows about God, he shifts his complaint towards God's instrument of discipline. And we can learn from that. Pick up with me in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Where'd that come from? We'll see here in just a minute. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Referring here to the Babylonians. 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. This sounds really silly. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. <laughs> Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. It's true. And for by, for by them, he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then, God, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The light comes on for Habakkuk. I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So complaint number one was why is God idle in the presence of sin amongst his people? Complaint number two, why is God idle in the presence of the evil conquerors? Habakkuk knows that Israel deserves punishment. But he wonders what God is going to do about the Babylonians. That's like us, isn't it? Think about it. Now, wait a minute, God. If, if this is your answer, i got a couple of more questions here. What about the Babylonians? What are you going to do about them? We, we should ask ourselves, how are modern readers to think about this dilemma? And I want to review this section just by parking on verse 12 for a little while. Verse 12 begins to shift our focus, if you will. It moves our focus from God's plans, excuse me, it, it, it turns our focus to God's plans by recalling God's character. That takes us to school. That takes us to school. Think about this with me now. When we're confused about something God is doing or not doing, we are real, well served by rehearsing who God is. Let me say that again. When we are confused about something that God is doing or he isn't doing, we are well served by remembering who God is. God may move in mysterious ways to us, but he will never act in a way that is inconsistent with his own character. That's one thing God cannot do. He cannot be inconsistent with himself. You and I act out of character quite regularly. God never does. He always acts within his character, so we can learn from that. In verse 12, Habakkuk is describing God as everlasting. Then he links that attribute to the preservation of God's children. He says, because you are everlasting, O Lord, my God and my Holy One, your children shall not die. Now, if we're thinking freshly here, at least I did, how do those two statements connect to one another? How does God's nature relate to the preservation of God's children? Some of you are saying, well, I got that figured out. Okay, good. Just don't tell me right now you got it figured out. To say that God is everlasting is to say that he doesn't change. My first thought when I read that, quite frankly, my first thought was he's eternal. Speaking of his eternality here. 
He's character. He's forever. Habakkuk's coming at that in a little different way. To say that God is everlasting is to say that he doesn't change. He always acts in a way consistent with who he is. The way God has acted towards the sins of his people in the past will be consistent with how he acts towards the sin of his people every time. may not be the exact same thing, but the pattern of treating it will be the same. He may not punish sin in exactly the same way, but he will always confront the sin of his children. Listen, God, by the grace of God, 1 John 1, 9, if you're a sinner, you cling to that verse and you hang on to it, the promise of God's forgiveness for those of us who confess and repent of our sins. It's there, and we ought to memorize it, and we ought to hold on to it, not for license, but for rescue. But to say that God forgives sin is not the same thing as to say that God excuses or ignores sin. He cannot do that. He never excuses it. He never ignores it. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. So he's never going to turn a blind eye to it. He's never going to just say, oh, well, that's the way they are. We'll do better next time. God does not function in such ways. But Habakkuk helps us when he tells us that even though God's children are justly disciplined, they need not fear death. I carry that truth forward almost three millennia. And that becomes a very encouraging word for you and me today. This sort of constancy in the character of God is immensely helpful when we're thinking about the providence of God and struggling with it. How do we go forward in the midst of a creation that groans under the weight of abortion and slavery and genocide? How do we do that, saint? Like Habakkuk, when we wrestle with God's sovereign rule over his creation, we remember that he is never idle against evil. His plans have not been derailed. His purposes are still going forward to their perfectly ordained end. Drawing on his knowledge of God, Habakkuk concludes then in verse 12, Since God is everlasting, his children shall not die. Since God himself is everlasting, the promises to his children are everlasting. Habakkuk is feeding our assurance here. God's eternality and his unchanging nature brought great assurance to Habakkuk. They should do the same for us. As bad as things might become, those who are faithful followers of God will not be eternally forsaken. Since God always acts in ways that are consistent with himself, we need not fear what he's doing or not doing. Before I move on, I want to share an application. It's subtle, but I want you to go with me here. Verse 12 and 13, I think, give us an application. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is holy. His eyes are, are too pure to look upon evil. That means he cannot and will not leave the guilty unpunished. I could take you to Exodus 34, 6 and 7 and show you that encapsulation of God's character in that sense, that he is loving and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's merciful, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And you'll see snippets of those verses throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament as it captures God's character there. The application for us, brothers and sisters, as we think about a holy God, is that should motivate us. That should motivate us to fight our sin in all of its forms. 
because he's holy. He can't look on evil. So when we sin, we invite the turning away of God's eyes. Don't beat me up theologically there. Go with my thought. I think you get it. It just so happens there's a class coming up in a couple of weeks to help us fight our sin. It's called the practice of godliness. The class will also help us see that fighting our sin takes great discipline. And it will help us see that God is worth all of our holy sweat in that. Yes, that's shameless, but it's a plug. After laying out his case for uncertainties in God's plan, Habakkuk decides to be still and to listen. I will take my stand at my watch post. I'm going to shut up, God. Station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer about my complaint. So, rehearsing in his mind and on the page for us what he knows about God. Habakkuk has made his case and now he's going to wait on the judge of all the earth to deal with it. There's some real meat in chapter 2 but I'm just going to offer a couple of morsels for our taste now and I'll serve a little larger chunk here in a few minutes. For the sake of time we're going to read just verses 2 through 5. I'm going to paraphrase the woes here in just a minute. Chapter 2 verse 2, and the Lord answered me. Remember Habakkuk's waiting now and the Lord answered. Write the vision Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Be a herald, if you will. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul, reference to Babylonian conquerors here, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. It goes back to the Babylonians. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he, has never, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So the second answer for God is this. God is sovereign over all the earth, and he will be glorified over all the earth. There are two parts to this chapter. First, there's a word of assurance from God in verses 2 through 4. The point for us to take away from that, I think, is that God is attentive to our prayers. He is, he is not silent. He is not inactive. His assurance here is spoken in the language of vision. He tells Habakkuk, write the vision. Prophet, record my promise. He says to Habakkuk, the vision will not lie. Prophet, I am sovereign over the ends and I am sovereign over the means. His promises go to the prophet. The vision will surely come. Don't trust what you see. Trust what you know about me. Don't trust what your eyes behold. Trust what you know about me. Those statements walk us up to verse 4. The soul of Babylon is, is puffed up and not upright, but the righteous soul shall live by his faith. The righteous soul has been crucified with Christ. The life, the righteous soul now lives in the flesh. He lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him or her and died and gave himself up for him or her. Now the implications of that verse run literally throughout the rest of Scripture. And I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. But for now, let that verse remind you that God is faithful. Waiting 
trusting, praying, never letting go of God's good and sovereign hand. That's what it means to live by faith. As I mentioned in verses 6 through 20, there are five woes listed there, two sections, if you will. I want to paraphrase those um, and acknowledge that you might paraphrase them a little differently, and that's fine. But for the sake of time, we're not going to read those verses. I'm just going to paraphrase them for you. You're welcome, and I would invite you to go back and read them and test me on them. Verses 6 through 8. Woe to those who use their power to take from those who are powerless. You will receive your just repayment. Verses 9 through 11. Woe to those who profit from the property of others. You will die for your evil methods. Verses 12 through 14. Woe to those who kill and establish a culture of evil. You are not outside of the omnipotent and sovereign judgment of God. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 14 tells us. Verse 15, woe to those who bring shame on a weaker people. Your glory will become your shame. Verses 18 through 20, woe to those who worship objects which cannot speak. God can speak and God will speak. Be still and listen. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I think the theme of those five woes is clear for us. Though God used Babylon to punish his children, Babylon would not escape God's wrath. God's reply to Habakkuk's concern about the Babylonians humbles Habakkuk, and Joshua will deal with that for us next week. All of the Bible is about Jesus. So we should ask, if that's true, Where is Jesus in the book of Habakkuk? Where do we find Jesus in Habakkuk 1 and 2? Looking at this book from the perspective of what we already know, I find at least four roads to Jesus. Finding Christ in Habakkuk in these four ways. First, we see a distinction in chapter 1, verse 4. The people are identified, you look there with me, as wicked or righteous. What's that based on? In the Old Testament, that sort of declaration was based on keeping God's law. After the cross and the resurrection, that distinction is marked by faith in the risen Christ. You're either wicked, apart from Christ, or righteous, you're in Christ. A second way to find Jesus In verse 5, chapter 1, when we read that God is doing a work that is hard to believe, think about that for just a minute, our minds should flee to the cross. How hard was it for Jesus' disciples who walked in his shadow for an extended period of time, how hard was it for them to believe God's plan for the cross? Even though Jesus himself told them that, How hard was that to believe? In 586 B.C., God raised up a world empire to punish sin. 600 years later, he would raise up his son to conquer sin. Three, when God is described as the Holy One, 
We remember in, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 12, we remember that Jesus is identified by the same sorts of terms in the Gospels. We see it in the birth narratives, and then we see it some other places as well. Fourth, in chapter 2, verse 4, if the righteous shall live by faith, there needs to be an object. Faith in what? Faith in who? There needs to be an anchor, an anchor for that. Faith in what? Faith in who? That is Jesus. The righteous shall live by faith in Jesus. The New Testament, I mentioned, uses that phrase in three different places. Every one of them says a little something different about faith in Christ. For instance, in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, I'm going to read the verses. You don't need to, just listen. You're welcome to trace me if you want. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So when we read those two verses with the notion of what Habakkuk is getting at, faith in Christ is the outworking of the power of the gospel. The verse is cited again by Paul in Galatians 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There it is again. So when we look at, at this verse, we see that faith in Christ is the evidence or the testimony of being justified by God. The active faith, the active faith is the outworking of the power of the gospel. You cannot have faith in Christ apart from the power of the gospel. You cannot stand justified before God unless you have faith in Christ, legitimate, genuine faith in Christ. That is your testimony that you have been justified. How do I know I've been justified? Because I trust in Christ alone and by no one else or nothing else. One more in Hebrews 10. Verse 38, coming to the close of a great chapter about wanting better things and longing for a better city and trusting them. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In this verse, I would say that faith in Christ, faith in Christ is the means of enduring by the saint that brings pleasure to God. How do we please God? By clinging to our faith in Jesus. Not trusting in anything else. Not hoping in anything else. How do we please God? By enduring through our faith in Christ. So four examples, if you will, of how Habakkuk points our hearts and minds toward Jesus. Probably others, if you've spent some time with him. So we deal with this notion of Habakkuk and thinking about the gospel, but we can't stop there if we desire to explore the whole gospel in the book of Habakkuk. A righteous God cannot dwell in the presence of sinful people. Only Christ can reconcile that broken relationship. So we want to see then where Habakkuk falls in the canon of God's plan for salvation so that we would know how to respond to what Habakkuk is telling us. So the last point then is hearing the gospel in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is written to a divided Israel. An Israel who found David wanting and Israel waiting for a true and better David. Redemption had been promised and graphically proclaimed in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. You've read those books. You know how graphic that those uh, those. Um, Words are in there in the images. 
Habakkuk represented a people of God who were looking forward to the promise that God was making to be fulfilled. That's the timeline. Habakkuk teaches us, if you are looking for redemption, you must look to the risen and crucified Jesus. The promises that were made in Habakkuk's day are now promises that have been kept in our day. Fellow believers, I'm always intrigued by faith in the Old Testament as, as sort of thought about in the concept of faith in the New Testament. It's all the same faith. Don't hear me wrong. Don't hear me wrong. Saved by grace through faith. Same way then as it is now. No different. But I think if we thought about it, saints, we have a huge advantage in being able to plant the flag of our faith in the soil of promises kept. Huge advantage. The cross is empty. Death is, is defeated. The grave has been overcome. Jesus is risen and he is Lord. If you've not yet trusted in the risen Christ, I appeal to you to do so this morning. There's pastors sitting all over this room. I'll be out by the main preacher's area, out there by those doors when we finish. We'll be available to talk with you and pray with you, show you what Scripture says about this. You came with a friend who claims Christ. Talk with him or her. If you have any sense at all that Jesus is calling you, let Habakkuk help you with that call. I mentioned in the introduction there is a contemporary application. Isn't that amazing how God's Word is so unified and coherent all the way through? There's never any contradiction in it. And it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So the words of Habakkuk the prophet can speak to our hearts 2,600 years later. Our 21st century concerns about evil winning out over good echo Habakkuk's concerns from 600 years, ago, uh, 600 years before Christ. Habakkuk shows us how to wait righteously, yes, with questions and concerns, and yet trust completely in the very same God. He is everlasting, therefore we shall not die. God is on his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple of heaven. And one day, not just heaven, but every square inch of creation will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. How do we know that? Because he has told us that. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So any brief study of Habakkuk, like this one this morning, should cause us to ask, are we living by faith? Or to put it another way, are we ready for that day? Father, you are good and your word is good. It is precious and a very present help in times of trouble, times of confusion, times of doubt, times of wonder about who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing certain things a certain way and why it can sometimes seem to us that you are distant and inactive. But God, we study today from this um, fairly obscure prophet that lived probably in the latter part of the 7th century before your son came to us. 
we read and study today how the relevance of what Habakkuk experienced traces across the centuries into our day. And we read that, Father, as we think about our call to live by faith. And we read that as we think about the reminder that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. And God, when we turn to you in prayer and trust and waiting, clinging to you, we are reminded, Father, you are in your temple. And we come silent before you with all confidence in your glory and your goodness to act in ways that are suited for you and fitted for us. And we please you, praise you for that, Father. In Jesus' name.